Um, all right, so hey, Hope family, uh, last week, if you were here, we uh, heard from uh, Pastor Jamie Levi, and I just had great uh, feedback, a lot of people talking about and impacted by the message that, that she had for us, and really, really good um, discussion in our small groups as well. And this morning, we have another guest who always knocks it out of the park. Now, I, I have read and listened to Jeremy Jernigan off and on for probably the last eight or nine years. Uh, and he is a brilliant, insightful, he's an excellent student of scripture, and he always is bringing great perspective. Every time I hear him teach or I read something that he's working on, um, Jeremy is the author of two books, and he speaks regularly at different churches. He also runs an organization called Communion Wine Company, the Communion Wine Company. Uh, and what they do is they bring people together to discuss Jesus in less uh, traditional spaces. Um, for instance, like in wine bars, um, we've been to a few of those events, Heidi and I, and it is a blast. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but family, we are in for a treat this morning. So would you give a warm Hope family welcome to Jeremy Jernigan. All right, great to be with you guys. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to get those out. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. I want to share a story with you that Jesus told, and Jesus is a master storyteller. And this story messes me up when I think about it. So my goal today is to mess you up uh, in the name of Jesus, of course. And uh, we're just going to wrestle with this today and figure out what does this story mean for us. But one of the things that this story is going to illustrate is how we handle things that don't go as we plan them. And, and, and I don't know how your personality is. You know, some of us, we're super flexible. Maybe you just go with the flow. Things can change. You're fine. It's not going to affect you. Others of us, myself included, we're planners, right? So we know the way things should play out. And when they don't, we don't do well. Like, we're like, no, that's not the way that's supposed to play out. And earlier this year, I realized that I'm definitely in that camp. Uh, we got invited to a, a comedy show by a guy named Sebastian Maniscalco. Uh, he was in town, and we were given unbelievable seats. Now, uh, some family members of ours had bought two tickets, like right in the front section, and then got COVID. So praise Jesus, they couldn't go, and they had to invite us, right? And so we get these tickets, and I'm like, felt bad for them, but I'm like, this is incredible for us. And so we, we go, show up there early, and it's like a 5,000-person venue, and, and we're like right in this front section to, to do this. And so we get there early, and you know, we're just enjoying this. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to like a sporting event where they do the kiss camp. And all that is is like playing off of social awkwardness in the room, trying to find two people on their first date, and then make them really uncomfortable for everyone else's enjoyment. Well, Sebastian did something similar where they would get a camera and they would zoom it in on a person's face. And if you were on camera, you had to do your best Sebastian face. And again, if you're like, what does that mean? Uh, that's what he looks like, and that's the kind of look that he does throughout his, his stand-up. And so if the camera would go on you, it was your chance, like, all right, do the Sebastian face, see how great of a job you can do. And so this is happening, you know, they're, they're painting the room, and people would do their best impression, get some applause, some laughter, they'd move on to the next one. Well, as this is going on, uh, I look around, I'm like, where, where are these cameras? You know, because like, I couldn't figure out, like, where are they coming from? And then it dawns on me, uh, we're in this front section, they're right on the edge of the stage. And I'm like, oh no, the odds of our section being on camera are so high. Where I, where I normally sit in the back, you're fine. But in this section, you are right in front of these cameras. Now, 
I'm the kind of guy, I don't like to be thrust upon people where I don't know what's coming and I can't control it. Like I'm an introvert, not my idea of a good time. So I start panicking. How do I make sure that I do not end up on this camera and I have to entertain 5,000 strangers? So I developed this, this little strategy. It's two part. Part number one, I realized the guy to my left, uh, before the show starts, he's three to four drinks in. He's having a good time. He's very loud, very extroverted, wants to be on camera. I mean, I know this about him. It would make his day if he could end up on camera. So I'm like, all right, here's what I got to do. I got to give the camera guys long enough to find him. Because if it's him or me, for sure, you go this guy. Like, he, he's a good time. And so I'm like, all right, how do I buy myself some time? Second part of my strategy, I realize my wife is sitting on my right. I'm just going to stare at her. Because if I'm staring at her and the camera goes, they're only going to see a side profile. And why would you put that guy on the camera? He's not even looking, right? They're, they're going to put people who are looking. So I just stare at my wife, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I got a strategy. Here's, you know, so she's like, all right, whatever. She's extroverted. She doesn't care. Uh, so so I, I just stare at her. Well, this goes on, I mean, probably minutes, but it felt like eternity of, you know, playing the strategy out. And I'm like, come on, this has got to work. This has got to work. And I'm just staring intently at Michelle. I hear the laughter, the applause. I don't see it because I'm not looking at it. I'm just staring at my wife. And that's when she says one of the worst things to me she has ever said in our entire marriage. She says, Jeremy, you're on camera. Sure enough, I slowly look over and there's my face in front of 5,000 people. What do you do? Well, you have to entertain them, right? So I'm like, fine, I'll do the Sebastian face. So I do the Sebastian impression, I get some applause, I get some laughter and I'm thinking, fine, I paid my dues, leave me alone the rest of the show. But it was like they realized they had found something. And so after I do my impression, they don't go to another person. They just stay on me. Now, they haven't done this to anyone else. I'm like, what are they doing? So I start nervously laughing because what else am I supposed to keep making the impression? Like, what else do you do? They're just locked in on me. They know they found someone. And it's just like getting all the social anxiety out of this moment. I'm up there for so long that my wife has the chance to get her phone out and snap a photo of the screen with me on it. Now you might say, Jeremy, you look like you're having a great time. Look at that smile. You look super happy. I am dying on the inside, okay? That is a fake smile. That is my awkward smile. I don't know what else to do because on the inside I'm dying thinking, please, Jesus, move the camera to anyone else. Why is this still on me? And I realized, you know what? I'm not the greatest. When things don't play out the way I envisioned them, I lock up. I don't necessarily know how to do it. I don't know how you are. I don't know how life throws a curveball at you, how you react to it. We're coming out of an entire season of this, right, where all of us have had to adjust. But, like, in a moment, how do you handle it when things don't play out the way you'd envision? Well, the story we look at today invites you to find out your answer to that. Because this is a story that, as I'm going to try to illustrate, doesn't make much sense when we look at the logic that Jesus is using. So if you're with me in Matthew 20, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And we're going to look at what, I just think this is one of the greatest stories that Jesus told. But this story is crazy when you break it down and begin to think about what is Jesus inviting us to experience. So Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal uh, daily wage and sent them out to work. 
at nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and he saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard at noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. Now we have a story context here. It's a 12-hour workday, and you have five different shifts. So it's estimated the first shift starts around 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 5 p.m. Five different shifts of workers throughout this 12-hour day. And you have all different workers represented here. Now some workers are working a 12-hour day, some workers are working a one-hour day, and everything in between. Now, quick question just to get us represented. How many of you, when you go to work this week, you will go to a 12-hour shift? Raise your hand. Okay, one. Uh, how many, or two. How many of you, when you go to work this week, you will go to a one-hour shift? Raise your hand. Yeah, these are my people, right? Uh, three of you, okay? The point is, not most of us fall into those categories. These are usually represented as extremes, right? That's a very long day, a very short day. But the point is, wherever you fall, it is all represented in this story. Those who've been there forever, those who've been there for a very little amount of time. Now, keep going. Verse 8. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning, this is where the story gets interesting, with the last workers first. Now, we might think you, you would not pay in that order. You'd pay the people who got there first, but whatever. Uh, he's going to pay the last workers first. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, that's the people who worked one hour that day, each received a full day's wage. Now, let's get into the story. If you were that worker, uh, you're thinking, okay, I've only been here an hour. Uh, I was told I was going to get paid a fair rate. You're probably dividing a daily rate by how you know, long you've been there, you're thinking, I'm going to get a fraction of a daily rate. And then you go after the hour you've been there and you get paid a full day's salary, you'd be going, that was the best one hour that I have spent in a long time, right? Like I got a lot of money for one hour of work. Now think about the people who had been there at 6 a.m. in the morning. They're watching this going, those guys just got paid a full day's rate at an hour we are making bank today. I mean, we are going to make 12 times that amount. This is going to be the greatest day of work we've ever had. You can only imagine what they're thinking watching these guys get that money. But this story, like so many things that Jesus did, has a twist. This story is not going to play out the way we had envisioned it. Uh, go to verse 10. When those hired first came to get their pay, okay, we've gone through everybody. Now we're the other end of the extreme, the 12-hour day people. They assumed they would receive more. Why? Because that's the way the world works, Jesus, right? That's how things go. But they, too, were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Whoa, 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 whoa. Those people worked only one hour, and you paid them just as much as you paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Now, we, we go, okay, this is Jesus. 
telling a story. Jesus can do whatever he wants, right? That's the good church answer. But let's just stop for a moment and let's get into this. Is this fair? Now, any logical person hearing this story would say, no. That's a big fat no. This is not a fair story. This is not a fair system. Uh, some of those workers worked 12 times as much, as long as these other ones did. They were out there earlier. You know, they had more drive. They were early in the morning looking for work. Like, how are you going to say that they're all going to get paid the same and that is somehow fair? And here's the problem, that everybody knew what everybody else was making. Now, I don't know in your workplace if you know what everyone else is making. That adds a fun dynamic to it, right? When you're like, oh, really, that person, right? But when you start making those kind of judgment statements when you know what other people are making. And in this story, everybody knows what everybody else is making. Now, let's do some math, okay? I don't know, we're in church, but we can do a little bit of math. Uh, I looked it up. What's an average eight-hour work shift across America? Uh, and one day of work, an average is $88, Okay, so if we use that as just our numbers, let's play these numbers, that would mean that some people in this scenario got paid $11 an hour, and some people in this story got paid $133 an hour, and they knew who was who. Now, just imagine at your workplace, you're, you're working an hourly rate, you make 11, and you know the person next to you doing the exact same thing you're doing is making $133 an hour. How does that feel? How are you processing all of that? Is it fair? See, what we're realizing in the story too, as you begin to insert yourself into it, is that so much of what we have is determined by what people around us have. Now, we would think logically that makes no sense. Why would that change what I have? But your perception of what you have is shaped by how much the people around you have. I can illustrate this. Would you rather have a salary of $50,000 a year where everyone around you only makes 25,000, your family, your friends, your neighbor, they make half of what you make, you make 50 grand a year, would you choose that? Or would you rather double what you make? You make $100,000 a year, but everyone around you makes 200,000. Now, logically you would say, all of us should choose option two because that's double the amount that you have in option one. But what's the problem? Why are we hesitant to choose option two? Well, I don't wanna be the one that has half of what everybody else has. We would rather take less and have more than those around us, if we're honest, than have twice as much because it wouldn't feel the same. See, Jesus' story is getting at the heart of motivations, of how we really treat the people around us, how we really view the people around us, and how we view fairness. If we're honest, I think most of us would say, Jesus, your logic is messed up here. Like, this doesn't work. See, we live in a world where many people, many even Christians, want to believe in karma. Why? I hear karma talked about all the time. Why? Because karma makes sense. Karma makes the world Fair. Oh, you do something, guess what? Karma's coming for you, right? Or you, you do something great, yeah, karma's gonna reward that person for it. Why do we love that idea? Because it's fairness. We grew up as kids going, that's not fair. And then we developed karma. And the like, whole thing, the universe makes sense now. Here's the problem, okay, friends. If you follow Jesus, you don't get to have karma too. Now, if you've never thought about this, I hate to be the one to break it to you, okay? We're still friends, hopefully. But I'm just letting you know, if you wanna follow Jesus, you just gotta let karma go. That is not a thing you get to have because as you see in the story, Jesus doesn't play on karma. Jesus' kingdom isn't fair. 
And, and when you get into it, you're going, whoa, that is like the opposite of karma. Like things don't work out the way we would envision them. Now, the problem for each of us is even if we could agree, let's make things fair. Okay, what does that look like? See, you might define fairness differently than I would, differently than you would, differently than you would, and we would all just figure out, like, well, what really is fair? Fair is a very subjective idea, and it depends on your own perspective. Let me illustrate this. There are countries such as Finland around the world where they have devised a new way to stop people from speeding. Now, we know how, you know, you get a speeding ticket, and depending on how fast you're going, it's how much you're going to get usually. Uh, But in countries like Finland, they base it on how much money you have. So your speeding ticket is based on your net worth. Now, this has played out in some rather unusual scenarios over the years. So uh, there's a person, a former Nokia director in 2002. He was going 17 miles per hour over the speed limit, 17 and he was fined $103,000 based on how much he has. In 2015, there was a Finnish businessman. He was driving 15 miles per hour over the speed limit. He had to pay $62,000. But the Guinness Book of World Records has a claim for the largest speeding ticket ever given out. It's one of these countries. Uh, the person was caught driving 35 miles over the speed limit. Their net worth was $22.7 million. That led to a speeding ticket of $290,000. Now let me ask you that question. Is that system fair? Some of us would say, yes, it's all proportionate. You have that much money, then yes, that speeding ticket should hurt you. It should feel proportionate. Others would say, $290,000 for a speeding ticket? That's crazy, right? We couldn't even agree on if that is fair, let alone whether or not Jesus should work on fairness. So, so what do we do here? How does this shape our understanding of God? Well, I want to get to the very next thing that, that, that is said in the story, because I think this is really the heart of it. Verse 15, it says this, should you be jealous because I am kind to others? This really is the question. So the story plays out like, well, that's different. I wasn't expecting that. And then the landowner says, should you be jealous? Because I am kind to others. And then you and I start to answer that. Okay, well, now we're not talking about employment. We're not just talking about our hourly rate. Now we're actually talking about the way that we interact with God. Should we be jealous when God is kind to others? The author and pastor Brian Zan has said it like this. The vineyard owner was more interested in giving people what they needed than what they deserved. Now, here's what you realize. As Americans, we don't really like this idea. That's not how we work. Oh, I don't care what you need. It's what you deserve, right? We we kind of default culturally to that. And then you get to a story like Matthew 20 and you go, oh, this one doesn't feel right. This doesn't sit right. See, I think you and I often have a fear deep down, a subconscious fear that someone who we don't think worthy of it, someone we don't think deserving of it is gonna get kindness based on their need and God's love. Like, God, you're just gonna be too good. If you ever read the story of Jonah, that's like the heart of Jonah in that story, which is the same idea, right? God, I just know you, you're gonna be kind to people, the people that I don't like. And that just unsettles us when we think about it. See, we live in a world where we want stories that are unfair to resolve the right way. 
right? You think about the stories, the movies that you, you watch, the shows you watch, the plot lines. They're all about something has created an unfair scenario and then it gets fixed. And if you walk out of a movie and it doesn't get fixed, you're like, that movie stunk. That was the worst movie I've seen in a long time, right? Because we want stories to resolve. Uh, I came across a text exchange that a contractor was having with the employer that was employing him who didn't quite understand why he was behaving the way he was behaving. This is the text he gets. Hi, Caleb. I was just informed you weren't on the morning stand-up call. Uh, How come? He says, "Uh, yeah, dude, I was asleep. I basically never joined those. Okay, he's going, I'm a contractor. Uh, Going forward, morning meetings are a requirement for employment. Uh, I expect you to be on the next call tomorrow at 9 a.m., you better be there or else. Uh, and then our buddy Caleb's like, no, not, not going to work like that. Uh, man, that sucks for you guys, but I'm not an employee. Uh, my contract says nothing about required hours or daily meetings. Like, hey, dude, we didn't agree to this. You can't make me go to this. I'm not being paid for that. Now, at this point, you would think the employer would go, oh, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. This isn't fair, right? No, that's not how it works, of course. Uh, they say you really need an attitude adjustment. If you are on the next call, you're fired Your choice, which our buddy Caleb says, you can fire me if you want, but you guys have to pay me through the 18th of next month regardless, so I'm definitely sleeping in tomorrow. Enjoy your meeting. And then this, you guys really ought to read the contracts you have assigned sometime. Pretty wild stuff in there, right? He's just standing his ground going, no, 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 you cannot make me do this. I know the contract. You evidently don't. Uh, So what does the employer say once they know they're stuck? Please call me. Which, whenever you, like, out-logic someone, it's just like, well, just call me so I can, like, talk it through in circles and make it feel weird, right? Uh, to which our buddy Caleb replies, no. <laughs> I love this. Why do we love examples like this? Because it's someone standing up in an unfair system, making it right. It resolves. We breathe deeply. We're like, yes, that is the way the world should work. Here's the problem, friends. You read the story of Matthew 20, it doesn't resolve. There is no resolution. There is no Caleb sticking it to the man, making everything fair. It doesn't resolve. You just move on to the next story. And you're like, Jesus, like, you're just going to leave us hanging there with this bizarre story that doesn't play out the way it should. What do we do? Now, here's the question, if we were honest. Would you go and work for a, a vineyard owner like the one in this story? who radically pays people different amounts and, and no explanation why. and every, You probably would go, no, that's not fair. I'm not going to work for that person. And then you go, well, what do we do if this is the way Jesus is describing the kingdom of God? What, what do we do with that if this is the person that we're trying to follow and we're trying to experience a different kind of kingdom? What do we do with that? So there's a few things we miss in this story. Here's one of them that I think most of us miss. If the landowner represents Jesus, those who got paid less hourly got more time with him. Well, it's unfair. They were there 12 hours and they got paid less of an hourly rate. Yeah, but they spent the entire day at the vineyard. They they were there all day with the the, the vineyard owner. Like, is, is that worth anything? See, what this story illustrates for you and I is what we actually value in Christianity. What's our motivation? What do we get out of it? And that might sound weird, but we all have a drive. Why are you following Jesus? Well, there's some reason that you think it's worth it. And what this story begins to play out is, what do you think is worth it in following Jesus? Is it just to be with Jesus, to be in the vineyard for the day? Is that payment enough 
or does it need to be something else? See, as I reflect on this, I, I, I came away with two questions that I would encourage you to process through, you and God. And, and if you wrestle with these two kingdom questions, I believe they will change you. They will change the way you interact with God, and they will change the way you interact with the people around you. Question number one, is Jesus enough, good enough for me? Is Jesus, is just that good enough for me? Or do other people need to lose for us to win? Are, are we in that second scenario? We, we would rather take less as long as other people have less than us. Do, do other people need to, to lose? Is the success of those around us a threat to what we perceive we have? Does it diminish what we have in Jesus if other people seem to have something better or, or something like us? Or here's a really uncomfortable way to say it, and if you are very bothered by this, you can email me this week at Doug Glenn at Hope Covenant Church, and I will reply to all of your emails, okay? Here's a really uncomfortable way to say this. Do other people need to burn in hell for us to enjoy heaven? This is what this story is, is getting to the heart of. What has to happen to other people for us to feel good about what we have? And what you realize is so much of our theology is like uncovered in this one story that just goes right to our hearts of why are we in it? What, what do we think we're getting out of the story? What makes it worth it for us? Second question, am I jealous when Jesus is kind to others who I don't think deserve it? See, what you and I subconsciously do is we go, well, the reason why I get grace is because I've earned it. I deserve it which is the opposite of grace, but that's fine. Like we just go, no, that's the reason God gives grace to me because I'm a pretty good person. And I'll be honest, most of you, you look like pretty good people, right? Some of you, not sure, but most of you look pretty good people. And so we go, well, of course we deserve it. Look at us. Like we're here, Sunday morning, we're doing the thing, right? That's why we deserve it. But what happens when Jesus is kind to those people? You know who I'm talking about. We all have a those people, and it could be different for you, but those people who you just look at and you go, I, I can't stand them. What they believe, what they do, how they act, their attitudes, whatever, right? We have some group that you just despise, like not those people. What if you saw Jesus being kind to them? What would that create in you? No, 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 Jesus, you only knew. If you knew what they were doing last night, if you knew what they, you know, but not too lately, like you wouldn't be kind. Well, what if? Jesus wants to show kindness to them. What does that do to you? Uh, Anne Lamott once said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Right? Isn't that the view of God we love? Oh, my God can't stand them either. Right? Like, that's how God is. No, that's, that's our view of God. Not the God we find in stories like Matthew 20, where God shows kindness to people. We go, they don't deserve it. Why are you showing kindness to them. I was raised uh, in a Christian home. My dad's a preacher, and so I was raised in the church as far as I can remember back, you know, always in church services, always growing up and saying uh, that was just the, the environment I was raised in. And so it was a big deal as a preacher's kid growing up in the church to finally make my first convert to the faith. I was in junior high, and I remember, we'll call him Phil. Uh, I have a friend named Phil, and Phil had like everything going for him that I didn't have. Phil was uh, tall, athletic, great with women. I mean, he just had it all and very popular. And so I remember I was friends with Phil and like vicariously lived my life through Phil because he was doing all the cool stuff that I wasn't invited to do. But the one thing Phil didn't have 
was Jesus. Phil wasn't raised to know Jesus, didn't understand it. And so we get talking about spiritual stuff, and he was always intrigued. Like, what is this Jesus you're talking about? That doesn't make any sense. We would start talking. I remember one time in junior high, it suddenly clicked for him. And he's like, dude, I want to be a Christian. I was like, oh my gosh, I've done it. I've arrived. I've made my first convert. Like, I'm a real Christian now. You know what I mean? And so I remember, like, all right, Phil, some things you got to say, and and I'm going to dunk you, and then we're going to be like, all these going to be awesome. Now, Phil began his journey with Jesus. Here's the problem. If you've ever been on that road with someone, it's not like an overnight transformation usually, right? Uh, it takes a little bit of time. You know, you got you to like work some edges off, you know. And so Phil still loved to fight. So that was just like his thing. And so he would often get in skirmishes. And then one day he ended up in detention over this. And, uh, and so I'll never forget him telling me the story of what happened in detention. He goes, Jeremy, I just did the most Christian thing ever. I'm like, what? He goes, okay, so I was in detention. I'm like, doesn't sound like the most Christian thing ever. He's like, no, no, hold on. I was in detention. And he goes, you know what I realized? That the other people in detention, they need Jesus too. Yeah, Phil, I mean, that makes sense. Sense the reason. So what'd you do? He goes, so I decided I was going to write a Bible reference on the wall of detention. I'm like, I don't think vandalism of detention is the right move here, but okay. So he's like, so I I wrote the only Bible verse I knew. Which, any guesses what the one Bible verse Phil knew? John 3.16, right? Of course, that's what Phil's going to write. Here's the problem. Phil got it wrong. Like, he remembered it wrong. And so uh, I was like, what verse did you write? And he goes, obviously, John 3.17. And I'm like, do you mean John 3.16? He goes, no, John 3.17. You know, God so loved the world. I'm like, that's not 17. That's 16. And he's like, Oh, no. He's like, what did I just write in the wall? I'm like, I don't know. Let's look it up. So you get a Bible out. Look up John 3, 17, which says this. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Which, ironically, is probably a better verse for detention, right? (laughs) Hey, you're here. You're being judged by the school, but God doesn't judge you. God came to save you, right? And I was like, Phil, that's beautiful. Like, you know, you're really doing something amazing here. But I literally thought... Are we okay with that? Like, are we okay with a God that didn't come to judge but came to save people? When we go, no, no, yeah, but not, like, don't save that one. I'm like, what about that group? Like, not, not that group. Like, skip over them. Judge them, right? It, we realize that there's all these verses in there that show us the heart of God. And most of us, if we're honest, at a minimum, we're not interested in cooperating with that process. So, God, do what you're going to do. That's fine. But, like, I'm not going to be a part of it. But what would it look like? If you and I said, you know what, not only are we going to acknowledge this is how God works, we're going to join God in this process. Like, we're actually going to be a part of it because we know this is the heart of God. And so we want to experience that as well. And so as I process this story, here's my takeaway of what this should do for you and I. That we should be the ones welcoming others into the vineyard rather than trying to keep them out. In my experience... The worst versions of Christianity is when you and I become the self-appointed gatekeepers. I will decide who's in, who's out, who's good enough, who's not good enough. I will decide, you know, what's going to get reprimanded. When you and I, we become the gatekeepers, in my opinion, it is the very worst version of Christianity. And if you look throughout the church, lots of time Christians have gone into that role, right? I would suggest the very best version of Christianity is when we become not the gatekeepers, but the celebration committee. 
when Jesus is welcoming people in and we're like, we, we're ready, come on, come on in. You're gonna get a big old hug. We're gonna celebrate you. We're gonna be so pumped. We're gonna bring you in. We're gonna teach you some things that we've learned. It's gonna be amazing. When we are that version of the church, we're at the very best. And what would God do with a community of people who said, you know what, we're not the gatekeepers. We're not the ones that get to decide this. We're gonna welcome each and every person, even when it's those people. We're gonna welcome each and every person in with open arms and make sure they know how much they are loved, not just by God, but by the people of God as well. I think it would literally change the world. And so I wanna close with this quote from a Polish American poet. Said, I knew always that I would be a worker in the vineyard as are all men and women living at the same time, whether they are aware of it or not. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for inviting us to the vineyard. And Jesus, some of us, we, uh, we've been here for a while and uh, we, we've watched others come since then. And it's easy for us to feel like we have somehow earned this, that we are somehow better or more invested or more deserving of, of what you've given to us. And if that's us, would you just check our hearts today? Allow us to release that. And Jesus, some of us, maybe we're, we're new to the vineyard and, and we don't feel like we belong and we don't feel like we're as good as those others. And may we realize what we have found in you and that we are just as welcome. And God, for anyone who hasn't yet experienced the vineyard, who hasn't yet said yes, hasn't yet been able to see how good you are, how radical this kingdom is, may they feel the, the welcome through us. May they feel that inclusion through us. Jesus, we're in awe of the way your kingdom works, unlike anything else we know. And may we not just watch from a distance, but may we actively participate in what you're doing. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.